Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. We're going to move now into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26, and as we get there, just a reminder, if you'd like to, we'll put up on the screens uh, the information that we have a downloadable study guide that we make available to you every week, which is just simply an expanded version of my research and preparation uh, with some more details and footnotes and different resources you can check out to help you there. It's available to you every single week, and so um, thank you. As many of you let me know you, you use these, and in your study and the way that you're wired, these things are helpful. Not all of us are auditory learners. Some of us, you know, those types of things are beneficial for you. So it's available to you. It also allows us, if we're close on time, to be able to feel like we're still providing you a good meal to eat, even if we can't get all of the courses on the table. So that's available to you. Um, I was curious, and I've always been curious, I use my imagination when I read. And whether you recognize you're doing that or not, you're doing that. There's some type of a visual thing going on between your two ears in your brain when you're reading a story and you're imagining how those characters look, you're imagining the scene, the setting, probably more things than you're aware of. And uh, I often wonder what the Apostle Paul looked like. I know in my imagination, I conjure up an image. I threw out in the first service today, I said, have any of you ever wondered what Paul looked like? And one person just said, no. I was like, all right, my challenge is cut out today. I've got to convince you that what I have to say is interesting and then feed it to you. But um, the Bible does not provide us with a whole lot of detail on what Paul actually looked like physically. We get these little tiny snapshots, and the few snapshots that we get is Paul describing himself. Now, there's probably a difference if I ask you to tell me how you look versus if I ask an objective third party to tell me how you look. Many of us are much more critical on ourselves than other people would be. I don't know if Paul was self-critical, if he was insecure, if he was just good-humored, or if he was being self-deprecating, but Paul, the very few times he alludes to his physical appearance, it's obvious he doesn't think too highly of how he looks. He uses phrases like, I'm not too much to look at, or... um, uh, there's another phrase that he uses that escapes my mind. It's in your notes. But he just, of being of humble appearance, I think is what he says. In other words, he recognizes that compared to other people of his day, maybe even compared to Peter, who by all historical accounts was rather tall, muscular, you know, fisherman, big strapping, strong, the rock. You know, he was the rock before Dwayne Johnson was the rock. You know, he was the original rock, right? So we do have, however, one, it didn't make its way into the Bible, but we do have one surviving account from an ancient historian by the, by the name of Onesiphorus, which to me sounds like more like a dinosaur. I just call him the big O. But he wrote, uh, he physically encountered Paul, and he wrote in some of his writings, that's I guess where you write things, you write it in your writings. That was a brilliant observation I just made there. Yeah. He wrote a description of Paul that I want to read to you. Very short. It's one sentence with a semicolon. He wrote this. He describes Paul as a man of small stature. So what does that mean? He's, yeah, a little guy. I I say this, probably not this small, but maybe like with a bald head, which means he was absolutely handsome, crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting, What does that mean? He got a unibrow, right? And a nose somewhat hooked. Not a real good endorsement, the beginning of the sentence. He's a a small guy with a bald head and crooked legs, good health, but unibrow and a crooked nose, full of friendliness. For simultaneously, he appeared like a man, but he had the face of an angel. So isn't it interesting that he says two things simultaneously about Paul? Totally unimpressive and not much to look at, but man, his face radiated with something. So Paul probably was not too far off when he said, yeah, I'm not much to look at, bald-headed, unibrowed, bow-legged, crooked nose, but his face shone like that of an angel. It's this unimpressive, bald-headed, unibrowed, crooked leg, bow-legged, hooked nose man 
that this week will stand in his threadbare clothes in an outdoor auditorium that is packed to the gills with people who got dressed up that night in their red carpet best to show off how important they were. And he is the one guy who looks obviously out of place. Now, the last couple of weeks, we spent a lot of time setting up this whole scene. It's 59 AD. Paul's been under house arrest for two years. And what he's been doing for two years is defending himself over and over and over again. By my count, seven times he's defended himself in, uh, in three trials, three legal trials of charges that have been trumped up by opposition. Certain extremist Jews who just basically hate Paul. They hate what he stands for. They want him dead. But the only way they can get that done under Roman rule is by convicting him in court of charges with a death penalty attached. Well, they've tried in Jerusalem. That trial dissolved and didn't work out. Paul's been tried under Governor Felix and Caesarea. He's been tried in court under a different governor, Governor Festus and Caesarea. Every time it's went, gone down the same way. The Jewish prosecuting attorneys get up. They give all their bluster of everything they hate about Paul and why he's broken Roman law, he's broken Jewish law, he's conspired to desecrate the temple. And then when it comes time to call witnesses and present evidence, they have none. They just say to the judge, well, you examine him and you'll see how true our accusations are. Festus and Felix Both the Roman judges assigned to Paul's case because it was in their jurisdiction. Both of them concluded these charges should be dismissed. He's innocent. He's not guilty of any crime. But neither of them did the right thing. Both of them suspended his ruling indefinitely because of all the personal character issues that they had and concern about how it would be perceived publicly and really not wanting to take a strong stand. Well, last week... We saw, or two weeks ago, we saw Paul had finally come to a point where he felt like it was time for him to speak up and assert his rights. He had been, he was fine being a doormat if it meant that it gave him an opportunity to spread the gospel that justice might be served. But now, two years into being imprisonment, enough is enough. There's nothing more for him to gain here. He's given up all hope that he's going to get a fair trial. He wants to move on with his life and with his mission now. And so if it's not going to happen in Jerusalem, and it didn't, and it's not going to happen in Caesarea, and it's not going to happen if a new judge hears his case, he finally just took his rights up and he said, Festus, I appeal my case directly to Caesar. I'm going to jump you and go right to the Supreme Court. And Festus says, okay, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And last week we saw this assembly, this gathering come together. Paul is going to be called today to stand before this huge group of people, probably the most people he's ever testified in front of in any form of court. Now keep in mind, this, what we're reading today, it's not a trial. Festus has already had a trial with Paul. He should be acquitted. And because Festus didn't dismiss the charges, Paul took matters into his own hands and appealed to the Caesar. And so if you're like me, you might be wondering, then why is Festus even having this meeting today? Why is Acts chapter 26 even an episode in history? Shouldn't he have just extradited Paul and transferred him right to Rome right away? Well, the answer is yes, but there's one piece of unfinished administrative detail that Festus has to accomplish. He has to finish up some paperwork. As part of his responsibility in transferring a case to the Caesar, the procurator, the governor, had to write up a document that summarized, here's the charges against the defendant, here's who's making the accusations, here's what the evidence and the eyewitnesses said in court, this is why the case is being appealed, and then you send it on to the Caesar. Caesar was very busy, he did not have time to dig up and do all of his own research right then and right there. And so he depended upon the procurators to send this docket along. And last week we studied that Festus was in a jam because he said, I have nothing to write. There's no charges. There's no, the charges are baseless. There's no evidence. There's no eyewitnesses. I certainly can't send this case on with no documentation. How bad would that look on him? And so he's hoping that this visiting king and his sister, 
slash incestuous wife, Bernice, because they know the Jewish law, they might be able to listen to Paul's case and review it and decode it enough to give something to Festus with which he can populate this report. So understand that this whole episode today, from Festus's perspective, is about extracting enough incriminating evidence to fill a report to send along with Paul when he extradites him to Rome to Caesar. And so here stands Paul. And he stands before all of these well-dressed VIPs, these important people. And today he's not going to have to defend himself to a prosecuting attorney. He's simply going to be given an opportunity to share his case with yet another person who hasn't heard him, a man by the name of King Herod Agrippa II, who, as we've learned, and it's in your study guide, he's, he's partially Jewish, partially Edomite, so he's of blended ethnicity. He's an expert in Jewish law and customs, so he would be more familiar with the tension, the inner Jewish tension that might have brought a Jew against other Jews into the court of the Romans and maybe decipher it in such a way that would help Festus populate a proper report. And so this is the scenario. I'm going to divide this whole chapter into three sections. Paul's opening statements, Paul's testimony, and then how Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice react to Paul's testimony. Chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You may speak in your own defense. So Paul, gesturing with his hand, started his defense. I am fortunate, King Agrippa. This is the speaking of an insane man right here, in my opinion. Most of us, in Paul's situation of two years of wrongful imprisonment, constantly being railroaded in kangaroo court, having judge after judge after judge deny the evidence and suspend your sentence, we would say, I'm unfortunate. I'm not blessed. I am unhappy. I am angry today. But he starts off the whole thing sincerely and genuinely saying, I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you of all people are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders, for I know you're an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now, please listen to me patiently. In other words, it's going to take me a minute to get my whole story out there, but please don't interrupt me. Paul has a history of not being able to get his whole story out before people interrupt him. He's just saying, listen to me patiently. I'm going to get there, just bear with me said every pastor ever. I'm going to get there. Just listen to me patiently. Now, I know it doesn't look like there's a lot going on here, but there's a lot going on here that I'll try and make brief. I really want to draw out of here the appropriately inappropriate happiness that Paul is experiencing today. In fact, could you compare what he just said here? I'm fortunate Be patient, I'm going to listen. With the very last time, just a couple days ago, he stood in court. At that time, he says to Festus, I'm not guilty of any of these things. You've heard all of the charges. You hear me? I've broken no laws. I should be set free. And Festus says, well, how about we take the trial back to Jerusalem? And I'll go along with you. Would you be willing to go back there? And Paul says, for the last time, no. Enough is enough. I'm not going to get a fair trial there. Been there, tried that. I didn't obviously get a fair trial here. I am not going to keep going through this. There's nothing more for us to gain here. The truth is the truth here as much as it is there. I appeal my case to Rome. He was respectful, but he was final. He wasn't being evangelistic. He was just saying it's time for me to move on. But yet, for some reason, today, he's a little more cheery. Today, I don't know... Did he have a good meal? Did he, I, don't, I don't know what it was. It probably wasn't because he was under house arrest. He says, I am fortunate. Let's go back to verse 1. King Agrippa said, all that we're seeing here is that Luke is showing you that Governor Festus is deferring to King Agrippa to run the hearing now. It's kind of like if you watch C-SPAN, which I'm sure all of you do, and you DVR it so you can watch the reruns, right? 
thank you, sarcasm. It's laying it on kind of thick. When a senator will say, you know, I, I cede the floor to my good senator from the wherever, whatever. This is all that's doing. He's, Festus is saying, I'm going to turn it over to King Agrippa. King, you are now the ruling person in the room. You can, and King Agrippa just says to Paul, you can speak in your own defense. And we get an idea here from the last chapter. King Agrippa at least knew who Paul was because he says, I've been wanting to hear this man myself for a while. And Paul knows a little bit about Agrippa. He knows that he's an expert. I don't know how well they knew each other, but they knew of each other. So he defers to Paul. It says, Paul, gesturing with his hand. That's an important detail that Luke puts in there. And you're thinking, I bet Paul had some gestures with his hand that he wanted to use in that service at that time. But it's not what we think today. There's a couple things going on. First of all, let's think about the hands of a prisoner that Paul even confesses to later in his speak. How are his hands connected in this scene? There's chains. In fact, at the end of his speech, he'll say, I wish you all could be the man that I am in Christ, except that you wouldn't be in chains like I am. So his hands are chained, and if you know how the Romans, the Roman guards, took care of chained prisoners, it's very likely his hands were chained two places, to each other and also to to a soldier. So think about it. If Paul's going to use his hand and it's chained to a soldier, what's the soldier's hand doing? (laughs) It's a very dramatic, it would have made an immediate impression. The other thing that would have let them know is that Paul is going to communicate in the style of true Roman rhetoric, which if you look at a lot of posters and pic- or posters, statues and pictures of philosophers of this age are almost always depicted doing things like that was the style that connected and communicated with influence to all of the listeners. So here's what Paul is showing you. He's not... He, he doesn't always communicate using the style of Roman rhetoric, but here's what he's doing. He's saying, I know my audience today, and my audience connects best with this type of a style. So what he's showing you, and I wish I had more time to unpack this, but it's, it's a really neat thing, especially if you're somebody who you like to talk to people about your life and their relationship with Jesus or you teach. What Paul's showing you is he was all about being flexible with style, but inflexible with truth. That makes sense. Okay, I talk a whole lot more about it. I can tell by the silence that just, let's just keep going. Um, he gestured with hands. He starts his defense. Next, next verse. Um, he says, I'm fortunate, King Agrippa, that you're the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations because I know you're an expert. Listen to me patiently. Can we talk about the insanity of a man in his position who would say, I am fortunate today. I cannot wait till I get a chance to tell everybody how this prisoner in these clothes with this amazing unibrow and this awesome head of no hair who has been imprisoned for two years unjustly, who can't find, who can't buy a fair trial, who fortunately is in prison because all these other people are plotting my murder. I am fortunate. That's not even the best translation. Greek word here. Markiron, it's, it's the Greek word number 3107 if you ever use a concordance and you want to kind of get the translation on it. It actually means, I want to read it to you exactly, from the back of the book, quote, it means supremely blessed. Not just blessed. Supremely blessed. Well off, happy, and fortunate. He's saying, King Agrippa, let me start off by saying how supremely blessed I truly am. How well off. There's one person in the room who does not look well off. It's him. He says to all the people who are materially well off, I want to tell all of you how well off I am. They're thinking, I got to listen to the rest of what this joker has to say. He is a loony tune. How on earth can a human being... Look, in his circumstances and under that kind of opposition, who is being mistreated like he is, what rational, sane human being can say, I'm in chains and I am supremely blessed? Can I just ask you for a second? Wouldn't you like to be able to testify to that yourself? Wouldn't you like to be able to sincerely say, Yeah, I'm going through a rough season at work, but I am supremely blessed. Yes, my three-year-old's temper tantrums are driving me to the brink of insanity. But I'm well off. Yeah, I just found out 
I've been let go, but I'm fortunate. Yeah, I have some family members who I love dearly who are absolutely mistreating me. They've cut off relationship with me. They are spreading all kinds of stuff about me. That's not true. They're interrupting the peace of my life. And yet at the same time, I'm happy. Now, there's a couple ways you can get there. Denial, insanity, or the way Paul got there. The way that a disciple of Jesus can say, I'm supremely blessed, even while you're in the middle, while you are on the wrong end of opposition, where you're on the receiving end of unpleasant life circumstances. The only way you can get there as a disciple is you have to change your perspective. It's a photography word. Perspective, vantage point. It's not pretending that the blue marble that you're being dealt is really not a blue marble and it's not there, it's really green and you just have to pretend that it's green. It's not trying to cover the blue marble under a blanket. It's saying, I've only been looking at this part of it, but maybe I just need to zoom out a little bit and see it from here. Maybe I need to just maybe rotate it around this way and look at this part of it. There's a different way to view my season, to view this test to view these circumstances that doesn't change the truth of it, but it gives me a different perspective. The most beautiful person in the world to you, whoever that may be, if you put their skin under a microscope and look at it at 10,000 X, do you know how it's going to look? Gross. But you zoom out and you say, oh, how handsome he is, how beautiful she is. Same skin, different perspective. You can go to some difficult parts of this community. You can go to some tough parts of our own city. Baltimore doesn't have a great national reputation for being a city of friendliness and beauty and order. I have had the privilege in my life of traveling to some of the saddest places on the globe. Walk through slums in South America, Central America, spent weeks of my life in Haiti. I've seen some of the worst parts of humanity. And when you zoom in on that stuff, the horror of it, the hopelessness of it, the weight of it is almost too much to bear. And yet, you can go on Google Images and you can look at, have you ever seen photographs or video of the earth taken from like the moon? or from a satellite. Have you ever seen those? And you just see like this glowing, beautiful blue orb and you say, I knew it was flat. I'm just kidding. It's some conspiracy theorists, just save your emails, right? And you, and you think, you know, what was it, Louis Armstrong? I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Perspective. You zoom in on that blue marble and you see all kinds of stuff, but you zoom out and you say, all that stuff is there. But when I look at it from here, I'm a little more optimistic. Perspective, the only way you can find opportunity while you're dealing with opposition. All opposition is, is any person, any force, any circumstance that's trying to pull or push your heart and your life in a direction you don't want to go. That's what opposition is. Haven't you ever been in a conversation and you look back over later and you're like, man, I know at what point in that conversation I just had, my heart started going in a direction it shouldn't go. And sometimes... You cut bait and you run, and other times you're like, oh, I wish I would have recognized in the moment so I would have stopped before I got there. But I'm telling you, Paul was able to zoom out and get a different perspective. He did not deny. that He never says, hey, living conditions are pleasant for me right now, King, Her- King Herod. The, the food is great. I am surrounded by spa and luxury. I've never, he doesn't say that. He just says, I consider myself supremely blessed. And he's either a madman or he's tapped into a different perspective and that he's looking at the same things that everyone else, he's looking at his chains, his trial, his hearing, seventh one in two years. He's seeing something different about it that everybody else does. In fact, he's seeing the zoomed out view that God sees and he's at a place of maturity that he's able to see what God is doing in real time, not just retrospectively. He's not going to go two weeks down the road and be like, oh, if only I had recognized that I had a chance to address more unbelievers at one time than I have in two years. I wish I could go back and rather than giving them a lecture, I wish I would have 
been more sensitive to speaking something that would help them and benefit them? Have you ever gotten off a customer service call and been like, if only I had handled myself differently, I wouldn't feel so bad about, maybe I didn't need to just give them two cents today. Maybe I needed to show them a different part of my life. I learned a lot about perspective in high school. I was in Royal Rangers, and we have Royal Rangers here on Wednesday night, and we were trying to earn one of our merits called the Pathfinder Merit. And basically, they were teaching me a skill that I use every day, and that is how to find my way through life with a compass and a topographic map. Sarcasm again. But uh, the way that they decided to teach us how to do it was we went on a, a, a trip to the Adirondack Mountains in New York. So me and all my high school buddies that were in Rangers, we loaded up in vans. We drove up there, and we went up there for a little over seven days. And, you know, it was pretty – it wasn't like camping like some of you think camping is where you pull into the spot and plug in your electric and your hair dryer, and you, well, I wouldn't know what that is, but, you know, you, you, you don't understand what I'm saying. It's, you're, you carry everything with you for the week, and you put it all in a canoe, and you canoe for a mile. You get out, you carry the canoe through the portage, and you get down to the next one, and you, and you keep doing that until we got out in some real, true, like, wilderness area. And for us to get our Pathfinder Award, we had to complete a, a topographic hike from a point A to a point B of no less than 10 miles using nothing more than a topographic map and a compass. And so once our leaders felt like we were capable of doing that, they paddled us out to a spot we hadn't been to, dropped the six of us off. We had a compass and map. They put a little mark on the other side of the map that was 10 miles away, and they said, we'll drive around over to there, and we'll meet you there. About 30 steps into the woods, I'm telling you, it was the most dense wilderness I've been in. Literally, the guy who was walking, you know, six feet in front of me, I couldn't see him. It's like every step that you're taking, you're not on a trail. You're like moving stuff, like swashbuckling your way through, through the thing. And, you know, we're, we're using all of our skills. And our skill said after about two miles, we should get to a stream. And how do you know what two miles is? It's like, well, you guess I'm going to go way into the weeds with this, but we're like, okay, we know it It should take us X amount of minutes at the rate that we're walking. Well, 15 minutes in, we hit a stream that wasn't on our map. And now we're starting to think, are we lost? Are we ever going to get out of here? The helicopters would never see us in here. We literally would die, and we're trying to figure out who is going to be eaten first. I mean, like, that's kind of where we're at. Three hours go by, four hours go by, five. And we're like, let's just trust the compass, trust the map. And we keep walking, we keep walking, we keep walking. And then it shows that we should be going up over a a pretty significant mountain. And so it's like, okay, and it was a rough climb. We get up over, we come down the other side. And according to our map, we should be like within half of a mile of the extraction point, right? But we don't see it. And now it's starting to, Sun's starting to go down. We have no cell phones. We have no walkie-talkies. Like I said, we had a few granola bars we already destroyed up there. You know, we, we, our map, we feel like, is useless. And we were seriously, I, as one of the old, two oldest guys in the group, I'm starting to feel a little bit of panic set in. And then my mind is going to another part of what we learned in Royal Rangers about what to do when you're lost. And one of the things they teach you to do when you're lost is don't panic and run through the woods and get lost. More lost? More lost. So I'm having this tension in my heart, like all the kids are looking at me, you know, like the the 15-year-olds and the 14-year-olds are looking at the 17-year-old, and I can see, you know, me and my buddy Eric are the same age, and they're looking at us, and when they see us not on the same page, they're like, you know, you could start to feel that settle in there. And so we walked just a few feet further. It was just one little clearing, and we walked just a few feet further, and Eric and I were pretty much like, we've got to tell these guys, we've got to get our survival kits. We probably just need, we're lost. And then all of a sudden, we walk to that clearing, and we hear this, hey, hey. And through that clearing, we could see this little rock outcropping on top of one mountain to our left. And way up top, one of the guys had a little pair of binoculars. It was our two leaders at the mountain that was, we just couldn't see it under the trees. We thought we were lost. They're there. I'm telling you, we were so, we're like, we've been found. We had no idea how to get up on that mountain, but we're like, we have been found. Like, all of a sudden, we felt all this hope rush in. Those guys could see us, and they knew how close we were to the finish line. 
But from where we were, we didn't have that perspective. You see, they had a a zoomed out view of where we were. They weren't stressed. They're saying, you're almost there. Just come up the hill. You're almost there. And we're thinking we're completely lost. Can I tell you what that did for us? It did not change the fact that that was a horrible climb up that mountain. It did not change the fact that along the way we'd have to walk through two streams we weren't prepared for. It didn't change the fact that it would be dark halfway up the hill. But what it did is it gave us a perspective that we were closer to purpose than we thought that we were. I'm telling you, Paul was able to say, I'm supremely blessed because God was able to elevate him and his thinking up to the top of that mountain and look down and say, you know what? There's a couple good things going on here. He had a practical opportunity in front of him. I'll share this with you. I think if you find yourself in opposition and you're saying, well, how can I ever, how can I change my perspective and find blessedness? In it? You, you got to look for what opportunities might be in front of him. Paul saw a practical opportunity. He's probably thinking to himself, here's a new judge who understands my world more than any of these Roman judges. He understands the Jewish stuff I'm up against here. He understands how Pharisees can get really bent out of shape over theological stuff. He probably even understands how a good Pharisee could get violent. Paul understands because he'll tell him in a second, I used to be a Pharisee who got violent against Christians. And he's probably hoping at least maybe this new set of ears can influence his case positively. And sometimes when you're in these seasons of opposition or uncertainty or you're just in a really uncomfortable place, life is not moving in the direction you want for it to go. Maybe, just maybe, while you're in this uncertainty, God's saying, listen, um, even in this season, I can help meet some of your basic life needs. For a couple years of my life, I had to go to work outside of ministry selling cars of all things. I realized me saying that has just sunk any credibility I have as a pastor. I did not love it at all. I didn't enjoy it. It was not an uplifting environment filled with other Christians who just stood around and drank coffee all day and talked about the goodness of God. It was cutthroat and difficult and personal, and a struggle, and yet somehow in that season, only God found a way and a niche for me. He gave me favor with one of my bosses in such a way that elevated me to a position that I didn't deserve and I shouldn't have had, and quite candidly, to earn more money and paychecks than I had ever gotten in my life. I remember one day a representative from Mazda I worked for Mazda and General Motors. I was totally, should I share this story or not? Yeah. Okay. So this, I'm just trying to figure out how, whether it's appropriate. It's not, in a, representative from Mazda drives into the dealership and he goes up to the, to the desk in the center where my sales manager was and they page me to the desk. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? And they're like, you realize that out of our 30 salesmen in here, you're the only one who actually went online and completed all the different coursework for all the different models and the product knowledge of them. I'm like, well, yeah, that's the only way I'm going to learn about the cars. I said, none of the other 29 guys did that. I said, okay, well, why am I up here? They said, well, what we don't tell you is that Mazda itself, as an incentive to the dealership, pays an additional $100 in a bonus for every Mazda sold at a dealership over the course of the year for every salesman, but the only people qualified to receive a portion of that check are the ones who completed it. So here is a check and I won't tell you how much the check was for uh, because about 60% of it went to taxes, but it was in the five figures, not only for every Mazda you sold, but for every Mazda this dealership sold over the last year, there's one share, you get all of it. That was a good day. It was also a sobering day. I'm like, where where did it all go? Like at the end of all these minus signs, there's this amount. I mean, up here, I mean, it was whatever it was, 144 Mazdas, But way down here, I'm like, wow, that's all that's left out of all of that? There was nothing about that season that was really enjoyable for me. But when I look back on it, I can say there are some God knew that in that season of my life when he was stitching me up for some train wrecks and rehabilitating me to return to ministry, I still needed my basic needs met. And in a situation I could have just said, man, I've got to work six days a week from nine to nine every day in an environment where my first name isn't a name, it's a profanity. You know, it's just like, it was an opportunity to meet practical needs. 
And for that, I was supremely blessed. You can also find personal opportunities in opposition. Um, How can I say this gently? Sometimes you face healthy opposition. That's when there's a person or a circumstance or a force that's moving your heart in a life you don't want to go, but you should go. Does that make sense to you? Oh, this person is just opposing me because they're, they keep saying this and saying this and saying this and it's making me feel this way and I don't want to deal with it. Well, is it possible that maybe it's something you should be dealing with that you're not? I, some of you have um, a career maybe similar to what I have in that everything you do is up for public debate. What you say, the decisions you make, how you spend your money, where you live, where you send your kids to school, what you say and you don't say, how you say it, what you wear, how you cut your hair or don't, it's all out there for public opinion. And in this day of social media making it easy, it's not hard for people to lob and discuss their opinions about you with others. And what you'll find out very quickly is I didn't even realize how insecure I was about certain things until it was opened up to public scrutiny. And you could say, I face so much opposition. If I ever talk on this topic, people leave the church. If I talk about money, people leave. If I don't talk about money, people leave. If I t- you know, no matter what, if I talk about politics too much or not enough or this candidate or that candidate or I, we teach verse by verse, but it's 45 minutes instead of 35. You just run all these different things. You can get in this headspace, right? And you could get to a place where you say, I'm just cynical. Cynicism is where you expect too little of people, Right? Right? You, just, you, just assume, you just assume everybody's going to be below board, and that's your way of defending yourself against it. You just get cynical. But there's another way you could say, you know what? Maybe the reason all these people got their feathers ruffled was because I said something inaccurate, or I used a tone that was inappropriate. Or you might say, maybe the issue isn't that people will be critical of me. Maybe the issue is that I care too, I base too much of my own view of myself on the opinions of others. I'm a pleaser. And I ought not be so insecure. I would imagine that in any type of opposition you find yourself in today, there's probably an opportunity for you to learn something about yourself and for God to help develop your character. And for that, you can say, I'm supremely blessed, not because it was painless, because I have news for you. Pain can be a great teacher. Wow, that's a whole other sermon. It can be a friend or an enemy. And sometimes the Red Sea between that separates you from this point in your life and the next point in your life is called pain. And God says, I want to get you there. But there's going to be some pain you're going to have to go through. And sometimes, yes, sometimes he splits the sea and you walk through on dry land. But a lot of other times he gets in the boat while the winds are swirling around and he just says, I'm going to be in here with you. But there's a personal opportunity for you in this crisis, in this season. But I'm zoomed out. I'm up on the mountaintop and say, hey, climb up here. I know it's a little bit farther. I know it's getting dark, but climb up here. Listen to my voice. Listen to me. Climb. I can see what you don't see. You think you're far away. I'm right here. I'm not leaving this mountain until you get here. Climb up here. Sometimes there's personal opportunities in the opposition that we're in. And if you can recognize that, you can say, yes, it hurts, and yes, it stinks, and yes, this is But I am happy. I'm well off. I'm supremely best because God renamed my, my opposition as opportunity. He renamed my trial and called it my testimony. He reframed that whole season of my life, and he brought better in me, and I would not have gotten here except for that pain that I was in. Number three. Paul also recognized evangelistic opportunity, didn't he? Maybe this is why his tone changed between the last two court sessions. At the last session he was at, all of those people had heard his gospel story and none of them were interested. And today, if you know anything about Paul, his number one priority was not getting out of chains. His number one priority was not comfort. His number one priority was not even sparing his own life. His number one priority was telling people about who Jesus was, what he did, and why it mattered. And if you know anything about Paul, he was always willing to leverage his circumstances if it gave him opportunity to tell somebody else about Jesus. And that's exactly what he does today because he shows up for court. I One of the great unanswered questions of this passage for me is how much advance notice did Paul get about this hearing? Did he have any idea before Festus sends for him 
that he's going to have a hearing? Did they tell him the night before? I don't know the answer. I just appreciate the brilliant preparedness of a man like Paul, who on the spot rolls out a flawless gospel presentation that is organized by telling his own life before Jesus, how he met Jesus in his life afterwards. He lived in a state of life where he was prepared. He was ready for planned meetings and unplanned meetings. He was always ready to tell his story and Jesus' story. Are you similarly ready? Are you ready? Could you tell your own story of how you came to faith in Jesus by saying, here's what my life was like before meeting Jesus. Here's how his life and mine intersected. And here's how my life has been different afterwards. And here's the basics of Jesus' story. That's part of our work as believers. He was ready for it. And he had evangelistic opportunity. Maybe you're in the season you're in. So you have audience and influence with somebody who's watching you in this season. I'm going to go back to that car dealership and tell you, about, <laughs> tell you about Chris Chandler and Paul Fortunate. My two bosses, one of whom I had to sit down with in an office and explain to him why I was leaving that job and going back to a job where I was going to be paid $35,000 a year, a third of my salary, because I wanted to get back into ministry. And he looked at me like I was insane. He looked across the table. He's like, you mean to tell me you would leave this job and this dealership to go do that? Yes, sir. Do you understand the financial implications? Yes, sir, but I guess at the end of the day, I value money differently maybe than others. Well, why is that? And I'm like, here we go. I was like, and he knew. He knew what my career was before that. I mean, he interviewed me. He knew it was a minister coming to sell cars, and he thought that was hilarious. He also thought maybe he knows a bunch of parishioners that would come in and buy cars from him. Every parishioner who thought that, every parishioner who when they came in and I actually put down the best price on the table, just all of a sudden didn't, wasn't so happy with me. <laughs> oh, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, you know, it is what it is. And I say to Paul, I say, well, at the end of the day, I, the Lord has spoken to me. I feel God has spoken into my heart and he's saying it's time for me to transition. And Paul, an unbeliever, is sitting across the table, he looks at me, he says, well, what if I told you that God spoke to me and he's telling me that you should stay? And I'm like, we are not going very well on this conversation. <laughs> he was very upset. He felt very betrayed. Because quite candidly, my sales were good for the dealership. When I make money, they make money. And when I leave, that different and I was one of the people that they actually trusted but I know and I was aware in that season of my life that as much as I couldn't wait to get out of that dealership I will tell you God wrecked my world from that point forward for the lost because up to that point almost all my jobs had been working in churches with believers I hadn't had experience what it was like to make deep close personal friends who were totally lost but who I just loved with all my heart and that has stayed with me to this day I still have distance relationship with those two guys. And the fact that I'm still doing what God's called me to do to this day is a testimony to them of the greatness, the redemption, the power of Jesus. So maybe today God's encouraging you and helping you to zoom out from your opposition and say maybe there is within your opposition some opportunity for you to grow in who you are as a person, for you to show Christ to somebody who's uniquely connected to this season of your life, or maybe there's some practical benefit that God is trying to draw out of it for you, just a little bit of encouragement. I'm almost out of time, so let me get on with the body of what Paul says. I'll read it all in one shot. It should be familiar to you. This is the third time that we'll see Paul tell his story. Here is his defense to King Agrippa, beginning at verse 4. As the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. If they'd admit it, they'd know I've been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. Now I am on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors Ironically, and in fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God day and night. They share the same hope I have. And yet, your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. In other words, he's saying, 
Agrippa, you understand what the Pharisees hope for. They hope for the return of the Messiah. That's central to all of our faith. I'm a Pharisee. My accusers are Pharisees. We all hope for the same thing, and that's what they're They're mad at me because I'm saying that the Messiah has already returned and that he rose from the dead. That's what they're mad about. They think this is some insane idea that I cooked up. But the irony is we all come from the same family tree, so to speak. We share the same hope. I'm just saying the hope has arrived and been fulfilled, and they're saying we should still watch for it. Then verse 8. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God could raise the dead? No, he's saying, Harry, do you see my frustration looking at my Jewish brothers who believe in the one true God of Israel, and I'm saying he's powerful enough to raise somebody from the dead, and they're thinking that I'm crazy. What kind of a God do they worship? It shouldn't be that hard for us to believe. But now he gets very personal, and he talks about his life before he came to Jesus. Now he's going to share his personal testimony. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus and Nazarene. In other words, I used to be exactly as my accusers are, not in spite of my Jewish faith, but because of it. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I personally caused many believers there to be sent to prison. Little footnote, just to maybe inspire your curiosity. There's a lot of great writing and research that's been done that has taken a needle and thread and stitched together this comment with some other unguarded comments Paul makes in some of his letters expressing regret, remorse, maybe to even some degree lingering residue of guilt and shame as he thinks back about his past and some of the awful things he was part of. Paul does not often go into great detail about his past because think about some of the things he alludes to here. If you have any type of sin in your past that you remember, you've probably had to learn how to receive not only forgiveness but healing from not only... The forgiveness comes quick, but sometimes the own guilt and shame we have over our own selves for stuff we used to do, that can plague you the rest of your life. And I love that Paul shows us that he is not proud of his past. And it has impacted him to a degree. Not the point of paralysis, but it's impacted him. He says, I authorized, uh, authorized, uh, caused many believers there to be sent to prison and cast my vote. Another, I don't have time for that historic side note. But you can look. Sanhedrin were vote casters. You could not be on the Sanhedrin unless you were married. So people use that verse to insinuate that perhaps Paul was married. Because he was part of the Sanhedrin, you couldn't be on the Sanhedrin without being married, and that perhaps his wife left him once he fully converted to following Jesus. We don't know, but there's a little side note for you. I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. In other words, I approved the death sentence of Christians. Here's some new stuff. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues. They would call it synagogue whippings or synagogue lashings to get them to curse, Greek word for recant. Do you understand? He was doing a type of thing today we would call terrorism that you might read about in some Islamic extremist attacks against Christians overseas where they would go through and ask people on the spot if they were Christian and if they won't recant, they execute them on the spot. Paul's confessing to being involved in that type of torture to force people to recant their faith in Jesus. I was so violently opposed... Paul's showing us that it is possible to be fully Jewish, fully ignorant of who Jesus is, and righteously violent, as his accusers are, okay? I even chased them down in foreign cities, enough of my sidebars. One day, I was on such a mission to Damascus. I was armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. You've heard this before, right? You've heard this story? Verse 15, or 13, about noon, your majesty, new detail, as I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me, and my companions, we all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's useless for you to fight against my will. Who are you, Lord, I asked, and the Lord replied, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. It's interesting. He, Paul had so many, he says, I had so many theological objections to who they claimed Jesus was. And then when Jesus shows up, what Jesus does not do is resolve any of his theological objections. He doesn't say, he doesn't say who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, listen, uh, Saul, let me break this down for you. Um, uh, turn in your Bible with me 
and I'll start showing you who I am. Another word that he's saying is, whether or not you know who I am, whether or, whether or not I can theologically resolve all of your objections, I still am. I am bigger than your objections. Paul gets none of his objections answered. He gets, he, you know, Paul's hung up, the Lord our God is one, and then Jesus came along and he said, he's the son of God and he's like God and he's the same as God, so that's at least two. Then he's talking about a counselor, then he died on a tree. He, he, he called himself God, did, he wasn't ready for God to have children. There's all these objections that Paul has. And yet, undeniably, a localized son blinds him a voice, a a person appears to him, introduces himself, and Paul is so objectively transformed that he literally loses his eyesight for three days until another miracle restores it. Paul is trying to say, if this guy wasn't real, I would have not changed the trajectory of my life. The only reason my life's trajectory changed from that type of a violent man to a person who's ready to die today is because of the objective, stubborn, historical reality of a resurrected Jesus. And I would be insane not to obey that type of a God. Get to your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you've seen me. Tell them what I will show you in the future. Next verse. I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles so you can open their eyes so they can turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins. Here's the gospel. They'll be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. And so, King Agrippa, no brainer, I obeyed that vision from heaven. (laughs) Wouldn't you? Haven't you had maybe a dramatic experience with Jesus that you're just like, I don't even understand it, but from that point forward, I never doubted the reality of God again. It changed my life forever. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then through Judea, and also to the Gentiles. Here's the gospel again. Here's the content of my message, King. Maybe the first time you're hearing it. All must repent of sin. All must turn to God. And all must prove that they've changed by the good things that they do. Boom. Gospel's out there for everybody again. Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this. And they tried to kill me. Verse 22. But God has protected me right up to this present time. And think about the power of this. You're going to miss this if you don't imagine this right. Up to this present moment, I should be dead. King, you know it. Governor, you know it. You all know it. Some of you probably transported me from there to here with a billion soldiers because people are trying to kill me. Why am I still here? So I can testify to all of you. God kept me alive so you'd have a chance to hear the gospel today. From the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Here's the gospel again, that the Messiah would suffer and be first to raise from the dead and in this way announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. Wow, I wish I could stop and unpack all of this. I can't lean on your study guide. What I really want you to see in here is how brilliantly Paul organized his testimony. He starts off by saying, here's what my life was like before Jesus. Just the right amount of detail, not too much, but enough. Here's how my life intersected with Jesus's life. And here's how my life changed after that. He says things like, after I met Jesus, I obeyed him. After I met Jesus, I preached. After I met Jesus, I did suffer. But after I met Jesus, I had a dramatic reversal of values. And the proof of his change in my life is understanding who I was and who I am now. And the only credit for that is Jesus. And he's standing there, and people are trying to process all that. So he probably has some more to say, but then verse 24 comes along. Um, He's getting ready to speak. Then suddenly Festus shouts. He breaks his silence by interrupting. He's not even in charge right now. This is a character break for him. Paul, you're insane, he says insanely. Too much study. In other words, you're really smart and you're really brilliant, but my only conclusion, you're crazy. And he has good cause to think this. Here is a man saying he talks to resurrected people in front of a localized son. Here is a man who thinks he's blessed to be in prison. Here is a man who feels like a voice from the clouds sent him on an assignment, and now he's not afraid to die. Paul replied very sanely, I'm not insane. 
most excellent Festus. What I am saying is the sober truth. And in the Greek, it actually says that what I'm saying is utterly reasonable because Christianity at its core is utterly reasonable. Hear me. Please hear me. In fact, worship team, why don't you come? Because I'm out of time. I got to close. You'll have to read your study guide for the rest of it. Look, in a moment, I'm going to ask you, somebody like you ask every week. Absolutely, I do. I'm going to ask you to think about entering into God's kingdom. I will never ask you to take a blind leap of faith, cross your fingers, and hope that there's a God. That's not how you come into God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not about insanity. God's kingdom is not about denial. Coming into God's kingdom, experiencing salvation through Jesus is by carefully weighing the truth, the facts, the reason. And it's utterly reasonable. The Bible says we're all sinners and we know it. The Bible also says we all recognize we need, we are incapable of living the better life we think we should be living, but we're unable to live. The Bible says it. It is not a historic myth that Jesus of Nazareth actually lived and walked the earth and taught the things he taught and did the things he did. Do the research. There are Roman burial records that say that Jesus died in the years we say he died by crucifixion. There are plenty of historic references, even outside of the Bible, if you discount it, to say that Jesus lived and was born to the people he said he was born to and taught the things that he taught and journeyed to the places that he journeyed. The only debate is, is he who he says he really is? He was either a lunatic or he was the savior. Because he died being convinced that he was who he said that he was. I'm not asking you to say, well, you know, I guess I'll just hedge my bets and I'll, I'll pray a prayer and recite a few things and just cover it. In the event that God really does exist, I want to have that part covered when I get to eternity. I want to hedge my bets there. Paul's saying, this is not insanity. What I'm telling you is the sober truth. It's solid reason. In fact, let me read the end of it too. Could you bring that back up for me, Julie? where I left off there. I think it's 25-ish. 20, uh, and King Agrippa. Watch how bold he gets. Don't just take it from me. King Agrippa knows all these things. I speak boldly, not because I've just had some liquid courage this morning, but because I'm sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were never done in a corner. Everything I'm talking about is a matter of public record. And then he gets real personal and does something no defendant would ever do. He turns the court on the king. King Agrippa, let me ask you a question. Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa interrupts him. Oh, did you, do, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? And here's the brilliant response. Then the mic drop. Paul replied, whether you come to Jesus quickly or whether you come to him slowly, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am except for these chains. Mic drop. Who else is going to Defense rests. The king, the governor, Bernice, they all get up and leave, and then they have this one, wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall of that conversation? Well, what do we make of all that? What do we do with it? Well, here's all we get. As they went out, they agreed on one thing. This man hasn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, man, here's the irony. He could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Now, I know you might be thinking, Pastor Phil, last week you said Festus could have at any time set Paul free. This comment seems to indicate that once someone appealed to Caesar, it was irreversible. Check out your study guide. I dug deeper into that and will present to you my findings as to why both that statement and this one agree. But I need to pray this morning. So let's bow our head, close our eyes. Every week I say this. Every week I give an opportunity for people to experience salvation in Jesus. I know, Pastor, I've been here the last 47 times. Well, look, then you should never have an excuse as to whether or not you could lead someone to Jesus because you could quote this along with me. Why do you think I do it pretty much the same way all the time? Because I want you to feel confident that when God opens opportunities for you, a believer, to lead somebody who's ready to come into God's kingdom, I want you to just be able to click into this and know you can lead them forward. We had two people respond to salvation in the 9 a.m. service. I wonder if there's somebody here this morning. You're here today. God kept me alive for this day to talk to you. 
This is an appointment on his calendar. And all I want to ask you is, are you ready to come into God's kingdom? Do you believe you need to be saved? Do you believe that Jesus can save you? Do you believe he will save you if you ask him to save you right now because he defeated the two things you can't, your sin and physical death. He defeated them both. He rose from the dead. And he says, if you'll follow me and I'm in you and you're in me, that resurrection power is available for you too and you will defeat sin and death and you'll live forever with me in eternity. That's the hope Paul was talking about. Do you believe Jesus can save you and that he will save you if you ask him? And are you ready, like Paul said, to turn to God? You can't turn to without turning from. Well, what am I turning from? Sins and stuff? Yeah, better answer. You're turning from living life however you want. That's what you're turning from. That's on the one end of this journey that we're on. On one end is being whatever I want to be being whoever I decide, being anything I decide to be, and on the other end is being exactly what Jesus says I can be. You have to turn away from a life that says, I can do anything that I want to, however I want, whenever I want, as I see fit, and saying, that seems foolish to me. What seems more wise is to be exactly who he wants to me, me to be, exactly like him, exactly like him. If you're ready for that, all you have to do is share that with Jesus right now. In fact, why don't you do that? Just tell him that. That's what you want. That's what you're ready for. Use your own words. You don't have to use mine. Use yours. Just be sincere and genuine. I challenge you to go through the Bible and find any occasion where someone approached Jesus asking him to save them, and they had some big, long, flowery speech. It was raw. It was honest. And every time he said yes. A simple prayer. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I know you can save me. I believe in you. I believe in your life. I believe in how you died, but I believe you were resurrected from the dead. I'm ready to turn from me and turn to you. Please save me. Something just like that. And if you prayed that prayer right now and you mend it, then he's saving you. You're saved. And what you're experiencing right now is all the joy of heaven being released to you. You're experiencing, you're probably recognizing that there's something new living inside of you. It's not a thing, it's a someone, and that is the Holy Spirit. He is a living in you and bringing you into union with God through Jesus. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning, I just want to ask you to do something brave. I'm going to count to three. And if you prayed that prayer with me, I want you to just slip up a hand and make eye contact with me when I get to three and then put your hand right back down. I just want to celebrate this moment with you. If you prayed that prayer, one, two, three. Who prayed with me this morning? Anybody at all? Wait just one more moment. Awesome. All right. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask one more question. Who among us might be brave enough to say, Pastor, I find myself in some type of uncertain or opposition season in my life. And I would benefit from having a heavenly perspective so that I can find blessing and happiness and a sense of being well off even in this season that I'm in. Would you just keep me in your prayers this week? If that's you, would you just slip up a hand that I can be praying for you this week? Awesome, I got you, I got you, thank you. Got you too, sir, yep, yep, awesome, got you guys. In the back, I like to make these mental images so that I know. Praise his name. Praise his name. All right. Everybody, why don't you open up your eyes, lift up your heads. Why don't you stand with us? Here's how we're going to end our service this morning. Worship team is going to lead us in a final song of worship today. Our prayer team is coming. If you'd like prayer about anything at all, as soon as we start to sing, just come to any one of us. We'd be happy to pray with you. We're also going to give you an opportunity to give of your finances in in an offering this morning. Many of you have done that digitally online this week. Thank you if you would like to give this morning. Uh, That's part of our worship together. And I'm going to pray. I'm not praying a financial prayer today. I just want to pray over all of you who find yourself in a similar season of life as Paul and you're owning up to the Lord today to say, I I need your help to zoom out and see so that I can say, even though I'm in this, I am also simultaneously supremely blessed and I want to seize the opportunities in front of me for myself, for my practical life, for my evangelistic opportunities to make the most out of this season I'm in. Heavenly Father, you are a good God and you don't waste our moments and you don't waste our messes and you can turn our trials into testimonies. You can turn our opposition into opportunities, but Lord, we need your help to change that perspective today. So I pray for every individual who confessed that to you today, that they acknowledge that's where 
wherever they are, and that's what they're looking to you for. Will you be like those leaders were for me when I was 17? Will you just call down to them today in whatever way is real to them and change their perspective? Let them in on what you see. Help them to zoom out enough that they can see something to purpose this moment that they find themselves in in a way that you can redeem and bring value into our lives so that you can continue to make us day by day into the men and women that you call us to be that we won't lose heart, that we'll have courage and confidence, and that we make best use of the time that we have in these waiting seasons for your glory. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you as you worship. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.